Hey, everybody. Welcome to Cigars and Syndication. I'm Robbie Rogers. I'm here with Jay Noor, and we're uh, very passionate about cigars and, and real estate investing. And today we're going to hit on some some topics that I think you're going to find very interesting. Hey, everyone. My name is Junaid Noor. Welcome to Cigars and Syndications. Um, today we are going to hit on a a topic that is in the news, which is the whole fiasco with CrowdStreet and Nightingale Properties. But before we get into that, what are we smoking? Today we're smoking a David off uh, 10-year anniversary in Nicaragua. Um, so far, really good smoke, a little bigger ring gauge than uh, uh, the normal uh, Nicaragua, uh, but uh, nice peppery and a little sweet, uh, maybe sugar, maybe coffee flavor that I'm getting right off the bat. Yeah, I'm getting... Uh... A nice pepper as soon as I lit up. And again, you know, I've, I'm always a big fan of David Off. Um, the Nicaragua especially is one that you like, but this is a 10-year anniversary special edition. How many boxes did they make of this? You know, I don't even remember how many boxes they made. I know it is a limited number. Uh, maybe one of our tech guys could let us know here shortly. I thought I read something like 3,200 boxes. Oh, okay. That, sound, that does sound right. Yeah, but... Uh, but uh, yeah, I get some chocolate, some leather, uh, dark brown sugar with the chocolate mix. So it's got a very nice uh, bitter chocolate, but a little bit of a sweet hit, hint to it. Yeah, I think maybe it's probably getting some of that sweetness from uh, the the rum barrels. I believe it was uh, stored in rum barrels for a, a specific amount of time, and um, really, um, really has a good flavor. Oh yeah, I, I'm. I'm. You know, I'm a big fan of Davidoff. I am a fan of this Nicaraguan. Uh, it's a very full-bodied, strong cigar. Make sure you have a really good lunch or dinner before you smoke this. So, you know, you don't get lightheaded, especially if you're a new smoker. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about Crowd Street and Nightingale and some uh, some fun things like that today. Jay, what do you what do you know about Crowd Street? So let's start with the with with uh, crowdfunding. Um, crowdfunding uh, started in 2012 with the signing of the Jobs Act. Um, and basically what it did was it allowed smaller investors, you're talking about $1,000, $500 investors, to start getting non-accredited investors, just to, to pull their money together and invest in a, uh, invest with a platform into different aspects so, you know, there's all these different types of crowdfunding, right? I mean, we know Kickstarter, which is a crowdfunding platform for uh, new uh, business ventures. Uh, we know of, uh, you know, CrowdStreet and Realty Mogul are two of the uh, crowdfunding platforms for real estate. We also know of uh, some of the non-for-profit uh, crowdfunding like GoFundMe, which is for, you know, somebody's having surgery and, you know, they need to raise money for their surgery and people kind of just chip in and, and help them raise money. So basically crowdfunding platforms were given the ability to not be, um, not necessarily file with the SEC, not necessarily be under the SEC rules, not have to deal with the accreditation and blue sky laws uh, of any state, and be able to raise small amounts of money for different aspects. Now, CrowdStreet in particular uh, raises money to invest in real estate deals. Well, you know, the, it's really interesting. I mean, you, you'd mentioned accredited investor, and, and I think the way that these 
groups, you know, market uh, their their fundraiser, their capital raises. It gives the small guy a chance to be a part of a bigger project. Uh, but maybe delve into the accredited versus non-accredited and, and how that, you know, impacts how they have to report all this. Right. So an accredited investor uh, has to have certain net worth, uh, I believe, uh, either a million dollars of net worth or uh, $300,000 of income over the past two years. Basically, the SEC wants to make sure that if you're investing fifty dollars or $100,000, you have enough knowledge to know what you're getting yourself into. You're not putting your life savings in. You're not, if you lose the money, it won't really hurt you. A non-accredited investor is somebody who doesn't meet the criteria of the accredited investor. Uh, but again, we get into different criteria. So for example, let's say we have, we have a real estate deal coming and we're going to only go with accredited investors. So, you know, if our minimum is $50,000, we only look at accredited investors and we can market to them, uh, openly as long as we are only, uh, receiving our funds from accredited investors. Now, I can do, we can do a mix where we could do up to 35 non-accredited investors. And basically the SEC gave that leeway. Let's say my mother wants to invest. She's not an accredited investor, but she's like, Hey, you're my son. I have a relationship with you. I know what, what you're, you're going to do. If you lose my money, I don't care. Or my uncle wants to invest. So the non-accredited portion allows people who you have a relationship with to be able to invest in your deals. Is there any time? consideration in that or is it just a, an established relationship prior to the fundraise no it's it's just an established relationship and then you know there are some checks and balances where the sponsor which is us it is our duty of care our responsibility to make sure that we understand that person's the non-accredited investors investment criteria and to make sure that you know they're not getting to something that they don't understand and that completely changes how you market and, and advertise and solicit for funds. Correct. And we did a whole podcast. Uh, if, you go back to, um, if you go back to our website at www.albanyparkcapital or if you go to YouTube and you go to the Albany Park Capital and subscribe to uh, our YouTube channel, we did a whole podcast on the differences and the details between accredited investors and non-accredited investors. Well, Jay, you just put out an article about uh, Crowd Street and Nightingale and um, maybe explain the dynamics of that situation. So now let's talk about Nightingale properties. And then we'll bring the two together and, and, and let our, 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 our listeners know what happened. So Nightingale properties has been around since about 2005. They are a real estate investment firm, just like us. They get investors together. They buy real estate. And they've had millions of dollars worth of millions of millions of square feet and millions and millions of dollars worth of actually in the billions of real estate uh, spanning over 22 states. I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, from 2005 and, and accumulating that and, and they use the, the syndication or, or capital raise method to, to acquire these properties or did they focus mainly on commercial? Yeah, mainly they, they focus on commercial. And so they have a, they have a pretty decent track record. They've been around for quite some time. Um, but you know, this is a, a very interesting time that we live in and we've done podcasts and, and YouTube videos on the, the, 
the future of the real estate market. And, you know, again, if you go to our, our subscribe to our channel and on YouTube, we have done other videos on the future of the real estate market. And this is a very precarious time because after COVID and after the work from home, office buildings are really just in a bad, bad situation. Yeah, they're still, they're still recovering from, from 2019. And, and there's a lot of people concerned about the commercial real estate market today. And, and I think, uh, I think it's probably justified. The banks are getting scared. So the issue came up when Nightingale, a, a well-known, well-established investment firm approached CrowdStreet, which is a well-established 10-year-old crowdfunding uh, platform for real estate and said, hey, we have these properties in Miami, uh, Miami Beach and Atlanta, and we want to use your platform to raise money for our investors. And so CrowdStreet agreed and they raised uh, $60 million from 800 different investors. Well, that's a lot of money. And, and then I guess CrowdStreet's involvement was simply getting this information in front of its viewers or its customers uh, to raise money for property acquisition. Exactly. So CrowdStreet has, you know, 100,000 investors. And so uh, CrowdStreet vets the deal and puts it up on their, on their platform and 800 different investors raise $60 million. Now, here's the conundrum. The deals in Atlanta and Miami never closed. And when CrowdStreet sent an independent investigator to find out what happened, the money's gone. Nobody knows what happened to the money. So they have 800 customers out of their money. Out of $60 million. And so now the SEC is involved. Uh, the FBI is involved. Everybody's investigating, trying to figure out what, what going, what, what's going on over here. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, I, if I was CrowdStreet or a capital raiser, you know, they probably thought this was a home run when Nightingale approached them. But then maybe they should have asked themselves, if they've been doing it this long on their own, why do they need me now? Right. And that is a very good question, amongst other questions, because, uh, I, I mean, I, as I was writing the article for our webpage, uh, I just started doing some research on Nightingale and found out that Nightingale has a lot of office buildings in Manhattan, uh, which are in distress. And um, a, there's a lot of opinions out there, not my opinion, but a lot of uh, gurus uh, whose opinions are that, well, CrowdStreet could have done a Google search, CrowdStreet could have uh, uh, delved more deeply into uh, Nightingale's financial distress situation and done a better job of due diligence. Right. We, we harp on that all the time and, and doing your due diligence, being conservative. Um, maybe they were just focused on the deal itself instead of the, the, the end customer or the end uh, developer. So, you know, again, with my Google search, I just I found out that Nightingale has one of its largest properties in receivership. It's got two more properties that are on the foreclosure auction block. And then it's think a half a billion dollars, a half a billion with a B dollars 
into a Manhattan skyscraper, which is completely empty. So, you know, and if you go to uh, our, the article that we posted, I have a link to CrowdStrew's vetting process, and they have a pretty good vetting process. You know, they vet the documents, the legality of the documents and the structure of the corporation. They vet the sponsors and they vet the deals, and they've done a pretty good job so far. So what happened here? Yeah, that's going to be a that's going to be a legal nightmare trying to untangle that and and you know I would hate to even speculate um that uh, this thing was put together with with bad intentions but it doesn't seem like um it doesn't seem like everybody did their their due diligence. And it may just be you know Crowd Street gets a fee for um a percentage of the money raised, and they just felt it was a slam dunk because Nightingale is a well-established company. But, you know, well-established companies are in trouble. Brookfield Asset Management turned over, in one of our previous podcasts, we talked about this. They turned over keys to office buildings in San Francisco. And Brookfield Asset Management is a large, multi-billion dollar public entity. So lots of people are in trouble, and I think that um, you know, for CrowdStreet as well as for individual investors, right? Um, make sure you understand who the sponsors are, what their track record is, and kind of just look and see if they're in distress. If they own office buildings and they own a lot of office buildings, chances are they're in distress. Well, while you're doing your due diligence homework, you should definitely grab you this David off uh, smoke. Um, really good smoke. It's mellowed out. Lots of flavor, lots of bold flavor. Uh, it's burning magnificently. Um, really enjoying this. It's a good smoke. Look at look at that ash. Can you can you zoom in on this ash? Look at this ash. That's a nice ash. I've been told that many times that I have a great ash. <laughs> <laughs> so as a result of of this fiasco with Nightingale um, and and the due diligence process not being followed, uh, Torstein, which is the CEO of Crowd Street, uh, has resigned. Well, how does this even happen? How does $60 million get misappropriated? So what the, the way Crowd Street does it is that as soon as investors start uh, putting money into Crowd Street's escrow, Crowd Street releases it to the sponsors. And now what they've done is they've amended their escrow policy to say that, look, we're not going to release funds to the, to the sponsors until the deal is closed. So if you take our, the way we do things when we raise money for, for uh, investment projects, <clears throat> we do a, a, a capital stack and we do a combination of debt and equity. And because we're in the development space, what we normally do is we go ahead and we purchase the land ahead of time. And then this way the deal is already closed. And then when we close on the, the, um, uh, the loan for the development portion, uh, that's when we take the money, the funds from the escrow of our investors and use that towards the closing. In cases of when when properties are purchased, the same way, it should happen the same way. The money should sit in an escrow account and the 
the sponsors should not be able to touch it until the deal closes because it gives the sponsor the ability, if you don't do it that way, to move funds around. Right. Yeah. I mean, you shouldn't be able to utilize that money for anything other than its specific intended purposes. And that is one of the SEC requirements. But there's no requirement that it sit. For example, when we go to close a deal on our land, the money that we give for a down pay, for a deposit, the earnest money, sits in escrow with the title company. And the title company doesn't release it to us until closing. There's no requirement by the SEC to do that. And that might be something that they may want to start doing, or they, if, if, if a lot of these events start happening. You know, right now, because crowdfunding is so young, we're all pretty much self-regulated. I mean, there's an SEC audit that could come in and things like that, but we're self-regulated, right? Are we getting accredited investors? Are we uh, following the rules of marketing towards non-accredited investors? You know, unless somebody complains, we're pretty much self-regulated right now. Um, but, you know, if this happens a lot, maybe the SEC comes in and says, hey, you know, investor funds need to sit with a third-party escrow company until closing. Is there any way you could protect yourself as a small investor? I mean, do you have the potential to to see those types of uh, things in the contract? Will they, can we, can they have be spelled out where you are safe and that it, it is only supposed to be used for this exact address? You know, uh, that would be a very good question for some of our legal pundits. Uh, but after seeing this, I would basically look at the PPM and um, make sure that the funds sit in an escrow account until closing. That, And we know, we know personally of certain sponsors who went and purchased properties and they took the, the funds that were supposed to be used to renovate the property to go buy another property. We know, we know of people who did that. Absolutely. And the property that they purchased, well, it's, it's run down. They didn't fix it up. And uh, those investors are going to face some problems because the value of the property hasn't gone up like it should have. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of people caught, especially you know, with the economy slowing down, with a, with values slowing down and staying pretty stagnant, uh, at least they're not receding. But people plan and forecast for, you know, appreciation and value, and and it's just not there right now. And you know, we you know, if you go back to our YouTube channels or go back to one of the other podcasts where we did talk about, you know, why multifamily is in a little bit of a trouble based on. Uh, the properties that were purchased at variable interest rates, now those interest rates are resetting and they're not going to cash flow at higher interest rates. Well, if they didn't even renovate those properties and they used that money to buy another property, you know, there's going to be some lawsuits, there's going to be some SEC investigations, and there's going to be some, you know, there's going to be some shakeouts. Well, you know, that was a good article that you wrote. It's on albanyparkcapital.com. Uh, smoke good smokes, uh, do your due diligence and know your partners. And, you know, uh, check us out on www.albanyparkcapital.com. Hit the resources button. We've got a lot of articles there. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave us some comments. You know, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear about our cigars. And uh, we'd, lo we'd love to be able to provide more information on anything you might want to talk about. We'll see you next time. Have a good day.